Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Today we're sitting down with Dr. Colleen Moore, Assistant Professor of History at James Madison University, and we want to thank you for chatting with us again today. Um, last time we talked about Russia's road into World War One, and today we're covering another big topic, the Russian Revolution. Before we get started, though, can you explain the Russian calendar for us? You know, we're going to talk about the February Revolution, but people are going to hear March dates for it. And this happens a lot in Russian history. So help us out. Thanks so much for having me back. The dates can be confusing. Prior to 1918, Russia adhered to the Julian calendar, which was the calendar used by the Orthodox Church, whereas the West used the Gregorian calendar named after a 16th century pope. In the 20th century, the Julian calendar was 13 days behind the Gregorian calendar. So the February Revolution started on February 23rd in Russia, which was International Working Women's Day, which is celebrated on March 8th in the West. Likewise, the October Revolution occurred in Russia on October 25th, which was November 7th in the West. But then in 1918, the Bolsheviks put Soviet Russia on the Gregorian calendar. So in the Soviet Union, the so-called Great October Socialist Revolution was actually celebrated in November. Okay, so that, that helps a lot then. So back to our topic then, 1914, start of World War I, Russia experiences a wave of patriotism that seems to mute the structural and social problems that it faced. The Tsar and his family probably felt more secure in 1914 than they had felt really perhaps during his entire reign. Um, and Russia enters World War I with the largest army. What goes wrong for Russia between 1914 and 1916? A lot. A lot goes wrong. Um, for a long time, there was a popular misconception that Russia performed poorly in the war because it was backward. It wasn't advanced enough to fight a modern world war. In reality, during the war, Russia was actually suffering from what the historian Norman Stone called a crisis of growth. The Russian economy expanded to meet the demands of the war, but the government was ill-equipped to manage this expansion. So the war wasn't lost at the front. They had enough soldiers and they had enough material to fight the conflict. It was lost at home. Some of the problems were directly related to the nature of the Russian government, the autocracy, which concentrated all power in the hands of one person, the Tsar. There were no checks and balances. There was no delegation of authority. Russia had a council of ministers, kind of like the U.S. president's cabinet, but each minister answered only to Tsar Nicholas, not to the council's chairman or to the Russian parliament, called the Duma. During the war, Russia played what historians have referred to as ministerial leapfrog, as the Tsar replaced one minister after another simply for failing to agree with him. In December 1915, Nicholas II declared himself commander-in-chief of Russia's armed forces, which was a terrible idea. Not only was he not a good military commander, but with the Tsar at military headquarters, who was in charge of Petrograd. It wasn't clear if military authority superseded civilian authority or vice versa. And a lot of decisions were left to Nicholas's wife, Alexandra, who was German. So when things went really badly for Russia, rumors began to circulate that she was a German spy. Another major problem concerned food supply. 
The autocracy had implemented policies for the procurement and requisitioning of food for the army, but it hadn't implemented parallel structures to ensure the provision of food to those parts of the home front that didn't grow their own, primarily Russia's cities. So there wasn't an absolute shortage of food, but there were problems with transporting it to places in need. Low supply and high demand generated skyrocketing prices, and Russian consumers blamed the government for not doing more to combat wartime speculation on the part of private traders. Reluctantly and belatedly, the government stepped in and established fixed prices, but only for agricultural products, not for manufactured consumer goods. As a result, peasants could not earn enough from the sale of their produce to purchase the manufactured products they needed, things like soap, candles, footwear. So peasants withheld their grain from the market. And by December 1916, both Moscow and Petrograd were on the verge of starvation. We talk about the Russian Revolution, but in reality, it's multiple revolutions. Can you take us through that first one in February that happens in Petrograd? 1917 opens with a wave of industrial strikes and popular demonstrations. Um, on January 9th, 140,000 workers from at least 120 factories, which was 40% of the industrial workforce of Petrograd, went on strike. On February 14th, another major strike brought out about 84,000 workers, affecting at least 52 factories. Then on February 22nd, a labor dispute broke out at the Putilov plant, which was the largest in Russia. And that led to a general lockout of workers by factory management, putting 30,000 workers on the streets of the capital. As I already mentioned, the next day, February 23rd, was International Working Women's Day, a socialist holiday. Women at several textile factories in Petrograd staged a walkout to protest the food supply situation. They were angry that they had to stand in bread lines after working 10 to 12 hours a day. They marched to nearby metalworking factories and demanded the male workers there come out and join them. More than 100,000 workers or one third of the city's workforce had come out by the end of the day. By the next day, the number of striking workers in the city had doubled to 200,000. They held meetings and staged demonstrations along Nevsky Prospect, which is Petrograd's main thoroughfare, and it leads to the Winter Palace, the Tsar's residence. It was on February 23rd that the mood turned violent, when a group of striking workers killed a mounted police officer who tried to prevent them from crossing a bridge and reaching the city center. February 23rd also saw students and middle-class professionals join the demonstrations. Now, up to this point, the military commander of Petrograd had planned to just let the demonstrations run their course, assuming the movement would eventually run out of steam. But then on February 25th, Nicholas II sent a telegraph for military headquarters in Mogilov and ordered him to, quote, bring all of these disorders in the capital to a halt as of tomorrow. The commander issued a proclamation forbidding street gatherings and warned that they would be dispersed by force. When on February 26th, demonstrators gathered in the city center in defiance of this order, troops were ordered to fire on them. And by the end of the day, hundreds had been killed. So the events of February 26th, 27th marked a turning point in the revolution. Because after firing on the crowds on the 26th, the soldiers returned to their barracks and resolved not to do it again. On the morning of February 27th, the soldiers rebelled and killed their commanding officer. The mutiny then spread to other regiments and barracks. And by the afternoon of February 27th, the soldiers' revolt had joined the workers' movement and government authority in Petrograd collapsed. How does the Tsar respond to this and what happens with him? I mean, I've read that he was initially very dismissive of what was going on in Petrograd. 
Right. Nicholas had a tendency to simply ignore information that contradicted his personal opinion or desires. When he first received news of the worker strikes in Petrograd, he dismissed it as mere hysterics. It was only when he learned of the soldiers' mutiny on the 27th that he was forced to take decisive action. He ordered one of his generals to take a detachment of soldiers and march on Petrograd to put down the revolution. And then he left for Petrograd himself. It's unclear what he was hoping to accomplish by returning to the capital, whether he thought his physical presence would somehow restore order or if he was simply trying to return to his wife and children. But his train got sidetracked at Pskov where his generals convinced him to abdicate in order to save the war effort. They explained that if he didn't step down, the revolution would spread to the front, soldiers would desert, and the Germans would invade Russia. At first, Nicholas named his son Alexei as his successor. Alexei was 12 years old and unwell. He suffered from hemophilia. When Nicholas's advisors informed him that the revolutionaries would insist on separating him from Alexei if Alexei were to become Tsar, Nicholas named his younger brother, Michael, his heir instead, which might have been illegal because it violated the law of succession. But at any rate, Michael didn't want the throne. And it was his abdication manifesto that officially transferred power to the provisional government. So tell us about the provisional government. Who is in charge? How is it made up? The provisional government was initially comprised of 12 members, eight of whom who had been representatives of Russia's parliament, the Duma. It was led by a man named Prince George Lvov, who was supposedly apolitical, but politically, most of the other members of the provisional government were liberals. As such, they believed that the true nature of Russia's future government could only be decided by popularly elected representatives who would draft a constitution. So the provisional government claimed to hold power only temporarily until elections to this constituent assembly could be held and the assembly could be convened. The provisional government's adherence to liberalism paralyzed it. Its members' political experience consisted almost solely of opposition to the autocracy. Because the autocracy had always tried to reform Russia from above, without popular consent, the provisional government thought of the state as a coercive force. Reform, reforms could only come from below, from the people, through their elected representatives to a parliament, the nature of which would be determined in the forthcoming constitution. So the only reforms the provisional government was willing to enact in its first weeks in power involved dismantling the autocracy's coercive institutions. It granted freedoms of speech, press, and assembly. It removed legal restrictions on religion, class, and ethnicity. It granted a general political amnesty, introduced universal male suffrage, abolished capital punishment, and created additional institutions of local self-government. And this is why Vladimir Lenin sarcastically called Russia in the immediate aftermath of February the freest country in the world, because the reforms that the provisional government enacted gave everyone the freedom to do anything while actually accomplishing nothing. What's the relationship between this provisional government and the Petrograd Soviet? And how does order number one play into this? So the word Soviet means council in Russian, and the Petrograd Soviet was a council comprised of deputies of workers and soldiers who supported and participated in the revolution. It was led by socialists. Because the Soviet had the support of Russia's soldiers and workers, it also controlled the army, factories, railroads, and post and telegraph services. Following the example of Petrograd, Soviets formed by workers and soldiers and even peasants sprung up throughout Russia and took control of local affairs. 
Historians refer to this arrangement whereby the provisional government and the Petrograd Soviet ruled side by side as dual power. Neither institution could exist without the other. The provisional government was the official government of Russia, but it had no popular mandate. The Soviet had the support of the people, but lacked official recognition. Initially, both institutions were even headquartered in opposite wings of the same building in Petrograd in the Torayev Palace. The Petrograd Soviet pledged to support the provisional government as long as the provisional government promised to uphold the gains of the revolution, a major one of which was order number one. Now, opponents of the revolution and conservative historians tended to blame order number one for Russia's military losses in 1917, claiming it led to a breakdown of discipline in the Russian army. But the point of order number one was to restore order to the armed forces. The garrison troops who had participated in the mutiny on February 27th were afraid of being punished for their behavior when they returned to their barracks. So the Petrograd Soviet issued order number one in order to get them to return. The order promised that soldiers would not be punished or sent to the front, which at this time amounted to the same thing, for their role in revolutionary events. It provided for the creation of soldiers committees that would serve as a check on the authority of officers. It said that soldiers only had to obey orders of the Soviet, not of the provisional government. It also mandated that soldiers would enjoy the full civil rights of other citizens when not on military duty, and that their officers could no longer address them by the form of you reserved for children and servants. The provisional government continues Russia's involvement in the war. In late summer 1917, the Kerensky Offensive begins, and of this offensive, Russian General Mikhail Alexeyev says, Even if we are not fully confident of success, we should go on the offensive. The faster we throw our troops into action, the sooner their passion for politics will cool. How well does this strategy work out? Terribly. It's a terrible strategy. Um, so in addition to order number one, the other main condition for the Soviet's continued support of the provisional government was the provisional government's recognition of a policy called revolutionary defensism. Adopted by the Petrograd Soviet on March 21st, 1917, revolutionary defensism called for defending Russia's borders to protect the revolution, but renouncing all claims on territorial annexations or reparations promised to Russia by its allies in the event of victory. But then in June 1917, the provisional government decided to launch a military offensive against German forces in direct violation of the revolutionary defenses and policy. This decision was made partly to aid the allies and partly to restore discipline in the army by giving soldiers something to do in a sense of purpose. But the results of the offensive were disastrous. Russia actually lost territory and soldiers deserted en masse. They took wagons and rifles and they returned to the rear where they instigated a popular uprising. People took to the streets again, demanding peace, bread and land and all power to the Soviets. And this period is known as the July Days or the July Uprising. It was entirely spontaneous, meaning that it wasn't led by any revolutionary party. And there's a great story associated with it. A crowd of 500,000 workers and peasants assembled in front of the Tauride Palace, the Petrograd Soviet's headquarters. They demanded that the leaders come out and explain why the Soviet wouldn't overthrow the provisional government. The socialist minister of agriculture, a guy named Chernov, who was a member of both institutions, was sent to calm the crowd. But when he appeared on the steps of a palace, a worker grabbed him by the front of the shirt and shouted, take power when it is handed to you. And then they kidnapped him and he had to be rescued later by Leon Trotsky. 
Now, even though the Bolsheviks had not orchestrated the July days and were in fact frightened by it, the provisional government publicly accused the Bolsheviks of collaborating with the Germans and of instigating the July uprising to sabotage Russia's war effort. So in the immediate aftermath of the July days, warrants were issued for the arrest of leading Bolsheviks, and Lenin himself had to go into hiding along the Finnish border. By late summer 1917, the provisional government and the military are still struggling to establish or maintain control. There's a rather strange coup d'etat attempt, though, known as the Kornilov affair. What is going on here? Following the disaster for the provisional government that was the July days, Prince Lvov resigned and Alexander Kerensky replaced him as prime minister. Kerensky then appointed General Kornilov commander-in-chief of the Russian armed forces. Kornilov had become a war hero when he escaped from a Hungarian POW camp and returned to Russia in 1916. He was also known for his hatred of the Petrograd Soviet, which he accused of encouraging workers to desert and of thereby jeopardizing the war effort. Kerensky, convinced a Bolshevik-led insurrection was imminent, asked Kornilov to dispatch troops to Petrograd so that the provisional government could impose martial law. But then Kerensky changed his mind and ordered Kornilov to recall the troops. Due to a series of miscommunications that reads like a comedy of errors, Kerensky had become convinced that Kornilov planned to overthrow him and install himself as dictator. But when Kerensky told Kornilov to stand down, Kornilov thought Kerensky was trying to install himself as dictator. So Kornilov disobeyed Kerensky's order, and Kerensky dismissed him from his post and charged him with treason. Kornilov refused to resign and appealed to other military commanders to help him march on Petrograd, promising to depose the provisional government and immediately convene a constituent assembly. Then in order to defend the capital from Kornilov's putsch, Kerensky had to appeal to the Bolsheviks for help, the same Bolsheviks he had just accused of being German spies. He released those who he had um, arrested during the July days from jail, and um, he agreed to arm workers' militias. Kornilov's army never even reached the capital, and he was arrested in mid-September, but the real winners of the Kornilov affair were the Bolsheviks. Wow, that's, that's quite a story. To this point, what has Lenin been doing? How does he factor into this story? When the February Revolution started, Lenin wasn't in Russia. He was in exile in Switzerland. And to get back to Russia, he needed to cross Germany, which Russia was at war with. Germany, however, was more than happy to facilitate Lenin's return to Russia because Lenin was against the war and Germany hoped that Lenin's arrival would weaken Russia's war effort. The German chief of staff joked that Germany had as much right to attack Russia with Lenin as with poison gas. Lenin's train arrived at Finland Station in Petrograd on April 3rd, and the next day, April 4th, he presented his April theses, which he'd written on the train, to a meeting of socialists at the Tauride Palace. Lenin criticized leaders of the Petrograd Soviet for their continued commitment to the war and to the provisional government. He argued that the revolution could only succeed if all power was immediately transferred to the Soviets in Petrograd and elsewhere. Most socialists Even members of Lenin's own party, the Bolsheviks, thought that Lenin was mad. They argued that the masses were not yet ready to overthrow the provisional government. Lenin reasoned that it didn't matter. The Bolsheviks could exercise power in the name of the people until the people were revolutionized enough to do it themselves. So Lenin spent the next few months between April and October agitating for the Bolshevik-led seizure of power, sometimes with the help of other socialist parties, sometimes without. 
Other socialist parties enjoyed more popular support than the Bolsheviks, especially outside Petrograd. But the Bolsheviks were the only socialist party to consistently oppose Russia's involvement in the war and to never compromise their principles by taking positions in the provisional government. Members of other socialist parties had agreed to serve as ministers. Over time, these two stances earned Bolshevik deputies more seats on Soviet executive committees. And so eventually Soviet power, which was equated with democracy, became associated with Bolshevik power. Okay, so walk us through the Bolshevik revolution. After the Kornilov affair, the Bolsheviks enjoyed a majority in the Petrograd Soviet, and Trotsky became its chairman. To forestall any possible repeat of the Kornilov affair, the Soviet decided to establish a military revolutionary committee, or an MRC, the majority of whose members were also Bolsheviks. And Trotsky persuaded the soldiers in Petrograd to recognize the military revolutionary committee as their authority. Lenin remained committed to the seizure of power by the now Bolshevik-led Petrograd Soviet. The provisional government had scheduled elections to the Constituent Assembly for November 23rd. And Lenin stressed that the seizure had to occur before these elections were held because the Bolsheviks would not win a majority of the seats. Finally, sneaking back into Petrograd in disguise on October 10th, Lenin managed to persuade the Bolsheviks to use the Military Revolutionary Committee to seize power. Now, a conference or Congress of the leaders of Soviets from all over Russia was scheduled for October 25th, and Trotsky suggested that this conference could legitimize a Soviet-led government. So the Bolsheviks could overthrow the provisional government, and then the Congress of Soviets could approve it. Kerensky conveniently provided just the occasion for the Bolsheviks to seize power on the exact eve of the Soviet Congress by shutting down the Bolshevik press for publishing anti-government propaganda. And this move violated the freedom of the press, which was one of the earliest achievements of the revolution. So Trotsky and the Military Revolutionary Committee ordered troops to seize control of Petrograd's railway and Central Post and Telegraph Office to prevent Kerensky's so-called counter-revolution. Then another group of soldiers surrounded the Winter Palace, where the provisional government was holding an emergency, excuse me, an emergency session, and demanded that the minister surrender at gunpoint. Kerensky escaped in an automobile, and that was basically it. The Petrograd Soviet had overthrown the provisional government. Lenin was therefore able to present the Bolshevik seizure of power to the all-Russian Congress of Soviets as a fait accompli. However, upon learning about the way that the Bolsheviks had unseated the provisional government, the delegates of other socialist parties were outraged, and they stormed out of the Congress Hall in protest. It was then that Trotsky shouted after them his famous line, quote, you are bankrupt, your role is played out, go where you belong, into the dustbin of history. In the absence of any political opposition, Lenin was able to pass a resolution declaring that the Congress of Soviets was the new authority of Russia. And the Congress elected a ruling body known as the Council of People's Commissars with Lenin as chairman. All the other members were Bolsheviks as well because all the other socialists had left before a vote on these matters had been taken. The Council of People's Commissars allowed the elections to the Constituent Assembly to proceed as planned, but the Bolsheviks, as Lenin had predicted, did not win a majority of the seats. They received only 25% of the popular vote and would therefore be unable to pass their resolutions. So the Constituent Assembly was allowed to meet for one day in January 1918. The next day, Bolshevik troops locked the doors to the building and the Council of People's Commissars ordered the assembly disbanded. Lenin justified this move by arguing that in a liberal republic, a constituent assembly is the highest form of democracy 
But in a socialist republic, the Soviet is the highest form of democracy. Lenin immediately ends Russia's participation in World War One. What kind of peace does he make with Germany? And is it advantageous to Russia? It, it is not advantageous to Russia. Um, the Bolsheviks had to get Russia out of the war upon coming to power because it was their stance on the war that was primarily responsible for their popularity. And in order to get Russia out of the war, the Bolsheviks had to seek a separate peace with Germany. Trotsky, as the Commissar of Foreign Affairs, contacted the German high command for an armistice on November 13, 1917. Three days later, a Soviet delegation headed to Brest-Litovsk, where the German headquarters was located, to negotiate. And this is one of my favorite stories. Um, the delegation was supposed to include, in addition to Bolshevik leaders, symbolic representatives of Soviet power. So a soldier, a worker, a woman, and a peasant. But on their way to the train station, the Bolsheviks realized that they'd forgotten the peasant. And it's like five in the morning, four in the morning. Um, they spied an old man in a peasant coat walking down the side of the street in, in the early morning hours. And they lowered their car window and they asked him, like, where are you going? And do you want to lift? And he got in the car and agreed. And then they convinced him to come with them to Brest-Litovsk instead and make history. Um, the Germans had the upper hand in the negotiations and were pretty much able to impose whatever terms they wanted because the Russian army was in no shape or mood to fight any longer. According to the terms of the final peace treaty signed at Brest-Litovsk in March 1918, Russia lost approximately one quarter of its territory and one third of its industry. Wow. How does the Western world view the Russian Revolution and does this evolve over time? Yeah, it does considerably change over time. During the early Cold War, the interpretation of the revolution was neatly divided along national and ideological lines. The Soviets portrayed the Bolshevik Revolution as the inevitable triumph of the decades-long Russian revolutionary movement, in which Lenin and the Bolsheviks freed the Russian people from Tsarist oppression. So for the Soviets, the Bolshevik victory proved the superiority of socialism over Western capitalism. Conversely, Western scholars portrayed the Bolshevik Revolution as a coup d'etat, masterminded by Lenin, who had stolen the revolution from the Russian people and prevented Russia from becoming a democracy. They cast the revolution as a tragedy. Lenin was a dictator and socialism was not a historical inevitability, but an aberration. However, in the 1970s, historians in the West began to challenge this tragedy narrative, and they became known as the revisionists in the sense that they were revising the prevailing Western interpretation of the revolution. The revisionists argued that instead of stealing the revolution from the people, Lenin and the Bolsheviks were actually following the people's lead. The Bolsheviks enjoyed mass support, and it, it was popular pressure that pushed them to overthrow the provisional government in October. Moreover, the revisionists insisted that the Bolshevik party was a genuinely democratic organization and that the Bolsheviks intended to implement real democracy in Russia. It was the experience of civil war that turned the Communist Party, as the Bolsheviks renamed themselves in 1918, away from democracy and toward centralized one-party rule. The collapse of Communist Party rule and the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991 largely rendered moot the historical debate about the inevitable nature of the revolution. These events also encouraged a reconsideration of the division of modern Russian history into pre-revolutionary and post-revolutionary eras. As a result, recent scholarship has focused on identifying continuities across the 1917 divide, treating the years from 1914 to 1921 
as a continuous period of war and revolution. The prevailing narrative that emerges from such studies is that political leaders, both socialists and liberals, use the tools of wartime mobilization to overthrow the autocracy and then to refashion state and society according to their particular vision. How does Russia view World War I today? The collapse of the Soviet Union combined with the centenary of the war has generated renewed interest in the war within Russia. In 2012, Putin made August 1st, the day according to the Gregorian calendar, that Germany declared war on Russia, an official military holiday called the Day of Remembrance of the Victims of World War I. In 2014, monuments to the war were erected in St. Petersburg, Kaliningrad, Pskov, and other Russian cities. The most famous of these is probably the monument to the heroes of the First World War in Victory Park in Moscow, a space previously dedicated to paying tribute to Russia's great patriotic wars, the first against Napoleon and the second against Hitler. The very inclusion of a monument to World War I in this space speaks to the war's elevated status in the post-Soviet period and to Russia's attempts to reclaim it as an important part of its history. Contemporary Russia's recognition of the First World War helps to legitimize Putin's Russia by portraying it as the rightful heir to Tsarist Russia, which some today consider the true Russia. But I think Soviet Russia was also the true Russia. Just because the Soviet Union eventually collapsed doesn't mean that it was illegitimate. All right. Well, thank you very much for sitting down with us again today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much again for having me back. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.